According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in uh, the book of Philippians tonight, Philippians chapter 1. I have been striving to persuade you on the significance of persuasion. The uh, Greek verb patho that speaks to this, the work of God in persuading us, which is, uh, by the way, just, just that term itself, the fact that God is so heavily engaged in our persuasion, what does that tell you? With respect to, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, the rigid determinism of Calvinism, uh, where if everything's all preordained and pre-ordered uh, by His sovereign dictate, then He doesn't have to persuade anybody. All He has to do is just say, hey, do this. But He, he persuades, and He's constantly persuading. And He's constantly at work in order to bring about the response that He desires. You know, He never... He never, uh, you know, think about how he persuaded Jonah. You know, he didn't, he didn't coerce Jonah's volition at all. But, you know, after the, the ship and then the storm and then the, the whale and then the beach and, you know, eventually after enough of God's hand of persuasion, um, Jonah decided standing on the beach covered with, you know, whale vomit is not, is not what he wanted to be. And so uh, then God says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah changed his volition and went to Nineveh. And so all these things I find interesting, and, and in particular uh, when we see the persuasion in the active voice and in the passive voice, when we see what it means to be convinced or to be confident of something, uh, it speaks to an abiding persuasion. In the perfect tense that means it's a past completed action with present ongoing results. And so having been persuaded, I am now confident. I am now certain. I am now um, different ways we can express it in English. But, and this is a true blessing from the Lord, to have that kind of a conviction where like the Apostle Paul we can say, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able right, to keep that which I have entrusted to him against that day. So these persuasions are, are indeed uh, marvelous. And uh, we should treasure them, we should be thankful for them, and we should seek out more and more. Uh, every, you know, every time we're studying the Word of God, just invite Him, say, Father, persuade me. Persuade me of what I need to be persuaded of so that I can respond by faith. And uh, persuasion is the, the necessary ingredient to faith, that uh, we have to place our faith in that which we have been persu- persuaded. So. That's what, uh, that's what it's all about. So, All right, we're going to pick up here in verse 6. We'll open in prayer, we'll have some question and answer, and then we'll get to our uh, prepared portion of the evening. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. Father, this uh, I enjoy the the midweek service. It's a it's a refuge, uh, Father. Such a gap between Sunday and Sunday, and uh, yet here we are, halfway through that week, and we get to fill it in with the truth of Your Word. I thank you for brothers and sisters that come together, Father, that are hungry for Your truth. Uh, the folks aren't here tonight for the fun and games or the programs or the entertainment. 
They're here uh, to uh, present themselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, uh, reward their hunger, uh, reward their diligence, and, Father, bless each one of us as we study your truth here tonight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have a microphone ready to go, so uh, we can lead off with a question, whoever has a question ready to go. And uh, we like to take the first 10 minutes or so for our questions and answers and deal with some of those things. So uh, what is on your mind tonight? Nothing at all. You came here empty-minded. Or you came here without questions. Everything was so well explained on Sunday that All right. Yes, sir. All right. Christopher, two rows behind you. Get the microphone there. The value to the microphone, it lets everybody in the room hear the question, plus people uh, listening to the MP3 file get to hear your question as well. My question is, um, I remember a while ago the, um, something was mentioned about uh, David hating with a perfect hatred. Um, can you uh, expound on that a little bit? Uh, hatred, yeah. Hatred is, uh, is a principle, and I don't remember what series that was a part in, uh, but hating to the uttermost. There's, we studied it as an application of love, believe it or not. Hate, uh, the world will tell you that hate and love are opposites, and, uh, and uh, they call certain things hate and hate crimes. And um, Let me see if I can find... It's in the Psalms like to the uttermost, or I've hated with the utmost hatred. Um, I'll see if I can find it, and if not, we'll have to save it for next week. But there um, there are passages that speak of that. Yeah, it's not going to come up. Um, that respect to a sanctified hatred. When it says, be angry and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Not all anger is sin. Uh, there are things that we should be angry about because God's angry about them. And if we have a different attitude than God, uh, that's hello, <laughs> we're supposed to have God's attitude on all things. And so if he hates something, we better hate it as well. Uh, but we need it with a sanctified um, perspective of God's word, see. And it all stems from the love of Jesus Christ. It stems from obedience to the Father's plan. It stems from our desire to be holy as he is holy. And so, uh, yeah, there are, there are psalms that speak to that. David expressed that, and, and, uh, and I think it is a legitimate application in, in different things. I'm sorry I can't come up with a scripture here tonight. I don't know why it's not. Uh, I, in fact, I had a whole study on sanctified hate. Maybe I made a note file out of it. All right, here we go. Yeah, yeah, no, here's, I, here's the little note file I put together called Hating People. And I didn't attach any names to this, so relax. <laughs> Will not be embarrassing here tonight. Because, you know, you constantly hear hate the sin and love the sinner. You know, like, like that's a Bible verse or something. And it's not in the Bible, and it's not even a, a valid context. God hates the sin. He also hates the sinner for doing the sin, and, and he says so very clearly. And so Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. And that's uh, the Lord who hates there. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. That's God's soul who hates 
the one who loves violence. Psalm 26.5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. And so hatred there, sanctified hatred motivates us. We don't want to uh, identify with those that, that hate Jesus Christ. Uh, Psalm 31.6, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. That's a Davidic psalm that is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and also typical for you and I in our application. Psalm 119, verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. And then the biggie, I colored it red, is Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And uh, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And right there, back to back, lest you think this sounds kind of harsh and cold and unchristian, um, right after verses 21 and 22 describing this utmost hatred, it then goes on to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And that's, that's powerful. To put those four verses in, in the tandem with two and two the way that it is there, 21, 22, 23, 24, so that hatred with the utmost hatred uh, is not uh, a hurtful way, it's not uh, wrong thinking that he invites the Lord to search out his heart and to, and to show him what needs to be adjusted. So uh, anyway, I'll leave you with those scriptures, but that's, uh, I think that's a, a worthwhile expanded upon even, uh, even more. All right, follow up on that. So will that, would that follow along the lines of uh, righteous indignation? Yes, sometimes it's called righteous indignation, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's just Baptist code for sanctified hatred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and you know, there's, there's other terms. Jealousy is another term. God has a godly jealousy. And, and of course, most of what we experience is carnal sinful jealousy but the same greek word the same hebrew word for uh, for jealousy for anger for hatred it just it comes down to the it comes down to the heart attitude and are we in fact loving jesus christ so all right let's uh chris let's bring the microphone over here to the other side you may yeah we'll get a we'll get a microphone over here to you and then uh after him we got to go to the back row for mary ellen thank you uh, I wanted to ask a question about Second Corinthians chapter five verse eighteen. Yes, sir. Where it speaks about Jesus Christ reconciling us to Himself, mm-hmm. and uh, because it's in the past tense, I, I believe this has already happened. Mm-hmm. And then in verse twenty, Paul says, uh, "We are Christ's ambassadors, God making His appeal as we were through us. We beg you for His sake to lay hold of the divine favor and be reconciled to God." So. Why does he say be reconciled when it seems like in verse 18 we have already been reconciled? Excellent. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this, uh, this, is, this is amazing. And this is all, it's, it's actually patrological with the stress on God the Father because God is the one who through Christ was reconciling us to himself. And so the Father is the one that, that we are reconciled to and Christ is the agent. Now when, when Jesus was walking this earth, he's Remember, he laid aside his privileges, he's, he's walking in humanity, he's identifying with us, so he was limited in the sense of, of being monopresent, one place at one time, and uh, everywhere Jesus went, you know, that's where he was, and that's where he ministered. Well now, 
Um, so that's what it was. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Same thing, though. Now God is in Christ, but today in Christ is you and me, the body of Christ, believers everywhere, all over this planet. And God the Father is still in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so rather than having one representative, you know, God, man, Jesus in the flesh, now he's got the body of Christ all over the world, but it's still the Father working in and through us to to preach the gospel and to reconcile unbelievers. And so when it switches the language there in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then it might be helpful if we have... uh, quotation marks or some kind of a thing to say, you know, these as if these are the words that God is speaking through us when we give the gospel to an unbeliever or when we, so it's, it's not directed towards the Corinthians themselves like verse 18 was. Does that make sense? Okay. And so I think sometimes though, I love it where it says uh, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, we beg you. That's fervent. You know, I don't know if you've ever done any begging, right? You know, but, uh, well, I mean, you've been a teenager before, so, you know, you've begged your parents for car keys or money or something. But, you know, think about begging. Think about uh, the fervency of begging and that urgency and that pleading and that, I, I wonder how many Christians truly have that fervency and that begging, you know, or, or in their evangelism is it just kind of, you know, eh, take it or leave it and here's the gospel and, oh, you don't want it? Okay, well, you know, oh well, too bad for you, negative, foolish, and unbeliever you, you know. No, we should be begging and pleading and, and on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I tell you, I want to be, I told the students this in Ukraine, I want to be the evangelist that leads the final unbeliever to Christ for the church age. Because the minute that last church age saint gets saved, that split second, when the bride of Christ is complete, we're going to hear a trumpet. And we're going to launch up to the air in the rapture of the church and meet the Lord in the air. And that split second, I want to be that evangelist who leads that final believer to Christ in the church age. Think about, you know, that's a story you can tell forever. And, uh, and you know, I was there and I led him to the Lord and here we go. So um, anyway, if uh, when it says looking for and hastening the coming day of Christ, I believe, uh, you know, the, the one way that we can hasten the coming day of Christ is to get busy about our evangelism and uh, get this bride finished so we can uh, so we can go home that's uh, that's that okay great question there and chris let's go to the back row then mary ellen had a question this will be our grand finale for the evening so i hope it's a good question it was just that i missed that scripture the first one i think you said psalm 55 regarding god's hate Uh, psalm 5 and verse 5 oh five and five thank you Uh uh-huh psalm 5 5 yep I don't know if I can make this larger or not. There we go. Yes. Psalm 5.5. 5. All right. Well, appreciate it. If you have uh, additional questions we didn't get to, then uh, we'll try to get to them uh, next week or shoot me an email in the meantime. What are we doing? Proverbs, Hebrews? No, Philippians. Let's do Philippians. All right. Oh, the Proverbs was fun this morning. Wouldn't mind getting back to that again. And Hebrews on Sunday was a lot of fun, but got to wait till next Sunday for that. All right. We are in Philippians, and we're in the midst of Paul's prayer life. Really, there's a huge section here um, from verse 3 to verse 11. It's all kind of one extended prayer. 
uh, with thanksgiving that's mentioned in verses 3 through 5, and then out of that thanksgiving springs additional prayer items moving forward. And so he is thankful in his remembrance in verse 3, always offering prayer, and that's where we see prayer is not just said, or it's not just thought, it's, uh, it's not just a verbal exercise or a mental exercise. It is a priestly exercise. Prayer is an offering. When we offer a prayer, it's, we are carrying a sacrifice to the, to the Father's throne of grace and we are offering it up as a sweet-smelling savor. And that's what he says here, offering prayer with joy. And you get to add joy to the prayers, as in when you pour out a cup of wine and you add a libation to your, uh, to your offering, see, and the joy then becomes the, uh, the wine component of our spiritual sacrifices. We'll be talking more about this in Hebrews, of course, because Hebrews is the book of our spiritual sacrifices. And uh, we'll learn how to add these drink offerings to our peace offerings and our trespass offerings and our thanksgiving offerings and everything else we do in the church age. Um, so always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so we have remembrance that looks back and then it brings it forward to the present and then it looks forward. So from the first day until now, uh, they had been able to send him some, some finances and he was thankful for that. And now he's able to look forward and says, and Paul's able to say with excitement that there's good things in front of him. There are good things in front of him. He says, for I am persuaded that's the patho verb in verse 6 we've been looking at now for the last two or three classes. I am persuaded of this very thing, or confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you... So you've got to stop right there. <laughs> Did they begin a good work in themselves? Yeah? No. And so is it up to them to, uh, to have victory moving forward? No. Okay. God didn't save them and leave them up to their own devices to work out their salvation, right? Uh, God uh, saved them, and He was the one doing that work, and He continues to be the one doing that work, that He began the process, and He's going to finish it. And the finishing is called uh, perfection. And that's what we're going to deal with here tonight, is perfection. So, for I am persuaded of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. All right. Now the day of Christ Jesus I've always taught is specifically with reference to the rapture of the church. I think it's bigger than that. I think, that, I think it does speak to the rapture of the church. But then I think through the rapture of the church it goes even beyond to speak of the fullness of time. To speak of when we get put on display for the thousand generations. And we'll, uh, we'll be expanding upon that in uh, some upcoming classes. But Anyway, because we've got some rapture doctrine coming up and we've got some uh, millennial doctrine coming up and we've got some new heavens and new earth doctrine coming up and that's really what we're looking forward to, not the millennium. All right, so persuaded about perfection, okay? He has a perfection persuasion. He is persuaded that uh, God, since he began this, is going to perfect it. God never starts anything that he doesn't intend to finish that he doesn't intend to bring to its perfect conclusion. God, uh, you know, we do that all the time, either because we give up or we're not able or we stop caring or we decided with hindsight it probably was a dumb idea in the first place or whatever the case. I mean, there's, there's countless reasons why we don't finish what we start. But that's not God. God doesn't do that. 
And I think there's a couple of areas in particular that um, this, this concept is going to become very vivid for us. Because I think um, some of these principles demand the fullness of times. They demand that the millennium cannot be the perfection. The millennium cannot be the fulfillment of what God ordered Adam and Eve to fulfill in the Garden of Eden. God told sinless Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And guess what? Sinless humanity never did that. Adam and Eve were sinners before they ever gave birth to Cain and Abel. So we have to go back and say, wait a minute, that procreation mandate, that ruling mandate and submission mandate was given to sinless humanity. And God intends sinless humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And I believe if God intends sinless humanity to do that, then sinless humanity needs to do that. And that's not going to happen until the new heavens and new earth when there is no more sin. And uh, it cannot happen during the millennium. The millennium is not long enough. The millennium is only a thousand years long, right? Only a thousand years. And, uh, you know, that's just a day to the Lord. But the fullness of time is a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And so that's when we're going to see sinless humanity being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and fulfilling the perfection of what God designed. Adam and Eve sinned and not thwart God's plan. He, had, he didn't just switch to some kind of plan B and decide to redeem us, all right? He's still on plan A. And that includes a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And that includes sinless humanity being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. So we got some of those classes coming up as well. Let me uh, get ahead here to our slide and what we're uh, looking at. I can get a preview if I do this. And then I can give you this. How's that? Is that where we left off? Did we cover everything on that slide? All right. You're tired of seeing that slide? (laughs) All right. We spent a lot of time on that slide, so let's get past that. But this is... This is the pathos slide, and this is the, these are all verses that deal with our persuasion in the active voice and the passive voice and the different, the different things there. All right. So what we want to understand starting tonight is that a beginning is not a perfection. And that ought to be a no-brainer. You know, the smallest of kids ought to figure that out. Uh, you know, when you run a race, you got the starting line, you got the finish line, Right? You say go, and the kids take off running. You don't stop the race as soon as they start and you know, start giving out prizes to whoever had the best start. It never happens. The, the race goes, the winner is the one that finishes first. Right? That's, that's how a race works. And that's, that's the common human experience, and that's the unified testimony of Scripture, that uh, you run in such a way so as to win the, uh, the, the wreath, to win the crown, and uh, everything that goes with that. So a beginning is not a perfection. If you think about it, how many, uh, how many things have great beginnings, right? Because we have great intentions and we have enthusiasm and we have whatever, whatever, you know? And uh, the, our, you know, marriage is not graded by the Lord on, on, you know, based on how well the honeymoon went, okay? But, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, 80 years later, have you glorified Jesus Christ in the long run? Were you faithful until death, see? in uh, applications there. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of ways we could illustrate with this, but um, Philippians 1.6, also Galatians 3.3, 3, um, you might recall, because Galatians wasn't that long ago, 
he, uh, he was calling them fools. I like it when pastors start calling names, you know, the, the, he's preaching to an audience and he calls them all a bunch of names, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to do that sometimes, and um, just looking out of the room, and I, I've never done it, but um, he says, you foolish Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And this is, this is the unthinkable thing for Paul, is that he's got a church full of people here that are walking away from grace. They're going to dump grace and go to legalism. Who wants to do that? You've got to be out of your mind. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And so he says, I've got one question for you. This is the one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And you can ask that same question to any believer you meet. Any believer in this church or any believer out there in the, in the wild or wherever you meet them. You know, if they got saved, just ask them. How did you get saved? Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? Did you work for that? All right? Because if you got saved by grace through faith, then guess what? That's how you're going to be perfected. It's not going to be through effort, through human effort, through the flesh. It's not going to be through what you've earned or deserved. It's going to be by grace through faith. And so he asked them this question, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Why do you think the flesh is going to perfect you? It, didn't, it couldn't save you. And if, if the flesh can't accomplish step one, how's it supposed to accomplish everything that comes after that? It just can't. And so the idea is, is that now, having been saved by grace through faith, now we want to walk day by day, moment by moment. This is what it truly means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means we're walking by faith in grace, letting God do the work. And a lot of what he does to bring about our growth is stuff we wouldn't pick out for ourselves. You know, uh, we're not going to see in Hebrews run the race that you pick out for yourself, right? Because I'd, I'd pick out a, a, a three-yard dash, okay? Or a three-yard, maybe not a dash even, just a three-yard mosey, you know? And <laughs> something, uh, some cheeseburgers along the way and maybe a milkshake and then, you know, cross the finish line and call that a race. Okay? And, and clearly something like that would have to have many, many rewards. <laughs> so you get this, right? Jesus Christ was our forerunner. He was the pattern, the prototype for the Christian way of life. And we're going to learn in the book of Hebrews that he required suffering. That's what perfected him. God the Father was pleased to perfect the author of our salvation. And he did so through suffering that he did not earn or deserve. And so we get to suffer by grace. We didn't earn it or deserve it. We get to endure our suffering by grace. And then we get to reap the rewards and the blessings in time and eternity. But it's all by grace. Every last bit of it's by grace. And so um, these things, I think, become, become important for us as well. So this is the, this is the, uh, the aspect on this. Uh, again, Galatians 3.3, 3, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And you think about, what are you throwing away? When you're walking away from the only path of growth, when you're walking away from the, the life of the Word of God, what are, you really, what are you throwing away? And does that invalidate previous service? Does that then nullify things that had been done? Is that all now in vain? You say, well, that's not possible. I laid up treasures in heaven. That's waiting for me. I, have, I, I banked that away. I can't lose that. 
then why does Scripture say, let no one take your crown? And why then does it say, hold fast what you have? And why then do you think that what you laid up in heaven is so marvelous and wonderful when that really was nothing? It was really just uh, the introduction to what's coming up next. Okay, So instead of being all proud of yourself that, uh, you know, yeah, you're, you're okay, uh, whatever. You, yes, you won a little race. You won the little kindergarten thing. But, but that was working for the next one and working for the next one and working for the next one. If you only knew what God had lined up for you 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And that's going to be some really tough testing. So today we better be hitting the books and we better be humbling ourselves and, and getting ready and being uh, built up in the faith and strengthened because I tell you, the things to come uh, are going to crush us otherwise. We've got to be humble and ready for it. And that, uh, I think that becomes significant as well. All right. The verb that's found uh, both in Philippians and Galatians and eight more places in the New Testament is epitaleo. Epitaleo. And, and telo, teleo, teleo, telos. We're going to see a whole slew of terms that all have the T-E-L uh, root. All right. And uh, the, this happens to have an epi in front of it, which intensifies it, makes it stronger. Um, teleo, it does speak of a, of a finishing, it speaks of a completing. And uh, in, in the Greek mindset, and I think also in, in Hebrew mentality, uh, anything that's incomplete is, is, uh, is not perfect. So much so, even in the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew language does not have past, present, and future tenses like we're accustomed to. Uh, the Greek has past, present, and future. Greek has, in fact, a couple of different pasts and, and uh, a couple of different presents. And, you know, it's got a variety of verb tenses that are, that are time-oriented that we're accustomed to in English because English has past tense, present tense, future tense. Hebrew doesn't have that. Hebrew speaks of something that is complete uh, or, which is grammatically called the perfect tense, or something that is incomplete or not yet complete called the imperfect tense. And to me, that tells a lot right there on how God approaches things. That it's, it's still in progress or it's complete. And, uh, and that's how God operates. Right now we're still in progress. That's why we're still here. <laughs> all right. When we're complete, then He'll call us home. Because God will say, all right, you're done. You're complete. You're perfect. And uh, we're moving on. So, uh, we have the compound here of epiteleo. And so we want to understand this and we want to understand the whole telos family as we come to it. So let's get a look at this. Epiteleo comes from a root uh, noun called telos. T-E-L-O-S, telos. And sometimes we use telos in, uh, it comes into English in some strange ways. It comes into English in uh, some philosophy courses or in some other logic courses. If something has a, a telic purpose, uh, it, it refers to something that, if it's telic, that means it's oriented towards its conclusion, oriented towards its finishing. And uh, so, not really a common English word, but it, it does exist. Telos is the, is the term. It has 40 uses in the New Testament. The strong concordance number for telos is 5056. And I bet you, more than anything, uh, as we look at these verses, you're going to recognize almost all of them. And you're going to know the verse. You're going to be familiar with the verse. But you just didn't realize it was telos, or you didn't realize that telos had the significance that it has. And so in Matthew 24, and it speaks to the end, um, God speaks to many ends. 
You know, much of Scripture, of course, starts with in the beginning. And yeah, we get that. We have beginnings, but we also have ends. And we have ends that we think are the end, but they're not the end yet. Okay? And we have ends that we want to be the end, but they're not the end yet. You know, different tests that we're going through, and we would much prefer that they ended yesterday. Why are they still going on? Okay? But God says, no, it is not yet the end. And the reason why is because it's not yet accomplished the purpose that he designed it for. So if you bail on it now, you just get the do-over on the testing because uh, he's going to bring about his perfect conclusion. So uh, Matthew 24, 6, uh, verse 4 says, See to it that no one mislead you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. All right, and so people get fascinated with uh, what, what you know I call newspaper exegesis. You know, they're they're trying to evaluate prophecy based on what they're reading in the newspapers and current events, and trying to look at the world stage and say, "Ooh, we must be in the end times." I think we're in the end times because First John says we're in the end times, and that was two thousand years ago when they got written. All right. But when you see wars and rumors of wars, understand that uh, these things must take place, but uh, it's not yet the end. And it says in verse 13, uh, we have the end. And in verse 14, we have the end. And so many of these things, what we find out is that these are just simply the beginning of birth pangs. These aren't even real labor pangs yet. These are just the beginnings of birth pangs. This is the false labor when the woman thinks she's about to have the baby and God's just laughing at her and says, no, that's not really labor yet. And then, uh, and then the real labor hits and they realize, oh, okay, that's what this is about. Uh, same chapter, um, verse 9, see in verse 8 you have the, the beginning of birth pangs, like the, the false labor of those uh, phony contractions. And then verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, there's always been anti-Semitism. People have always hated the Jews. Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews. But it was not because of the name of Jesus Christ that most of that hatred has been motivated. In the tribulation, the hatred will be motivated because of the name of Jesus Christ. And there's going to be a significant Jewish evangelism going on. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be scouring this planet, giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Jewish people are going to be hated because of, of that uh, evangelism. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And uh, that's why the doctrine in the book of Hebrews is so significant. Because uh, Jewish believers that are walking in Christ need to resist the temptation to revert back to a Judaism way of, way of thinking. And that was true in the first century. It's even more true in the tribulation. And Because uh, when they fall away in the tribulation, they're not just going back to Sanhedrin uh, Judaism. They're going to be serving false prophet Antichrist. And they're going to be murdering their fellow Jews in, uh, in the tribulation. All right. And uh, many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Sometimes I think that's not prophecy. Sometimes I think that's current events. I think it's the generation in which we live. Lawlessness has increased and love has grown cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Okay? And we can love that passage and not be scared of that passage. Don't fall for it when the Arminian tells you, see, look, you can lose your salvation has nothing to do with you and I today. 
This has to do with believers surviving the tribulation, staying faithful in the face of Antichrist and all of the, the tribulation being unleashed. And enduring to the end of the tribulation means uh, staying alive long enough for Jesus Christ to return at Armageddon. All right? And uh, when you understand the context from Matthew 24, you can love it, and then you can laugh at all the, the, the tragic people that try to use this to defend uh, losing salvation. Because it has nothing to do with the church age or you and I or uh, the, you know, trying to say that I have to endure to the end to keep deserving my eternal life. I didn't deserve it the day I got it. I still don't deserve it. I never will. Okay? And I can't lose it because I'm in Christ and, and nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Then verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. For the first time ever, Israel will be faithful in their mandate to uh, be the light unto the Gentiles. And it's going to come through their maximum persecution and, and martyrdom. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the Gentiles or the nations. And then the telos will come. Okay? So, tetelestai, right? I mean, it is finished. And, and, and the, if we want to be telic in our thinking. We want to be focused on the end. We don't want to lose sight of the goal. It is, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If we get our eyes off the purpose, then we stop running with endurance. So there's uh, those uses. John 13, 1. Another use of telos. John 13, 1. And before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, this is so significant. How many times did they try to stone him? They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill him. And again and again and again, you read it all through the gospel record again and again, he was delivered from their hands because his hour had not yet come. And time and time again, well, it's the hour, <laughs> okay? The hour has come. And Jesus is fully ready now. There's not going to be another deliverance. There's not going to be another escape. The hour has come. He will be arrested. He will be crucified. This is why he was born. So knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, notice, he loved them to the end. Isn't that beautiful? He loved them to the end. This is, this is what we're called to do. We're admonished, be faithful until death, Right? We, uh, to love them to the end. No, there's no greater love than to lay down your, your life for the brethren. And this is what we see in Jesus is the example for this. So I appreciate that. How about Romans 10.4? Romans. Another telos passage. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the telos. Not just the, you know, not just that it expired, not just that it's old-fashioned, not just that it's gone. It's perfected. It's completed. Jesus Christ is the end of the law because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He met every single requirement, not only for ceremonial observance, but for prophetic fulfillment. He's the jubilee. He's the tabernacle. He's the bread of heaven. He's the, he's the everything. He's the, he's the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. I mean, he's just, he's all of it. He's the, 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 the bowl of atonement. He's the, uh, I mean, you name it, he's it. He is the mercy seat. 
Everything in the law is pointing to Christ. And so no wonder he is the telos, the end of the law, the perfection, the conclusion of the law to all who believe, for righteousness, to everyone who believes. And that's why trying to create a righteousness of your own is, uh, is just sad, insipid. All right, so that's Romans 10.4. How about 1 Corinthians 15.24? Here's one y'all ought to know. This is the fullness of time. This is the end. When you think of the end to end, 1 Corinthians 15.24. You know, there is a beginning, what I call the alpha moment, that moment that is, is difficult to speak of anything before because anything before is eternity past. Anything before the alpha moment is beyond the boundaries of time. And so we can, we can call it eternity past. We can visualize it or conceptualize it as before, before the world was, before the foundation of the world, before the alpha moment. Um, but it, it's kind of awkward to think of those things that happened before, like the divine decrees and the eternal life conference and, and God and his eternal fellowship that all happened before there was any kind of time. Likewise, what happens after Omega? There is an Omega moment. Still future. We haven't reached it yet, obviously. There is an Alpha moment. I mean, there was an Alpha moment. There is an Omega moment upcoming. And it's at least, you know, a thousand and seven years and a thousand generations from now. Um, But there is an Omega moment coming. And at that Omega moment, it's called the end. When Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom up to the Father and all of reality will be transferred out of stewardship operations. We'll no longer have dispensations. God will no longer rule through a steward. Father and Son will rule together as joint uh, kings, as vice-regents. Father and Son, uh, vice-regents, when you have two kings, Father and Son at the same time. God the Father and God the Son will rule for all eternity, in eternity future, beyond that omega moment. And that's what's described here in 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. And in verse 24, in fact, we got a, an order here on the resurrection. Verse 22 says, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits." And that's either one item or two, depends if you want to put a comma there or not. Then after that, those who are Christ at His coming, then comes the end. When He hands over the kingdom to to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority and power. So this is the end. It's called the great abdication. Because the Son is going to deliver everything to the Father. The one who Himself was delivered now delivers everything to the Father. And this is called the end. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Remember, for a thousand generations there is no death. There is no sin, there is no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. And we have a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Then verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him then the Son Himself also will subject to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. 
And this is what happens on the other side of Omega when we enter into eternity future. We have the Father and the Son. Once again, remember, I and the Father are one. Jesus said that. When the Father and the Son reign together for all eternity. But that's called the end in verse 24. Of all the ends in the Bible, that's the very last end you, we can ever conceive of. Because the other side of the Omega moment is eternity. Eternity future. Alright, if you want more on that, we've got an ABC reader of the hallway called Plan of God, and I recommend uh, you can get oriented to that. Okay, how about Philippians 3.19? Wow, we got more telos in Philippians? Yes, we do. We got a lot of telos and other compounds of telos in uh, Philippians. Philippians 3.19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Um, and, and, and. I forget where the telos is there. Oh, I'm in chapter 2. You're right. Philippians 3. 19. Thank you. Yes. Enemies of the cross of Christ. And they're in your churches. It says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In your local church, there are believers that walk after the apostolic example. You also have believers who walk after a different example. For many in your churches walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So why are they in church? (laughs) Well, where else would you expect them to be? That's where they can do their damage whose end, whose telos is destruction, whose God is their appetite. And that's a broad expression. That can be human hunger, that could be food, alcohol, sex, fame, money. There's a lot of things we develop an appetite for. And uh, they're all under that umbrella that they all can be idolatry. You You can turn any appetite into idolatry. Whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things course, we were told not to do that. In Philippians, we're told to set our attention on the things above. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's where we get more rapture doctrine. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And so we get transformed, that twinkling of an eye. We get to cast off this mortality and pick up glory. What a delight that's going to be. Alright, so that's Philippians 3.19. Hebrews, we've got some more telos in Hebrews, Hebrews 3.14. So I hope you're gathering the sense here that it's more than just simply end chronologically or end in sequence or end as an expiration day, but it's end with a, a perfection or a fulfillment or a purpose or a, or a destiny, all right? Just uh, there's such a richness to this term. We have become partakers of Christ if, and we do, first class condition, assumed to be true, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Alright? And uh, there are many passages in Hebrews that appear to be warnings and some people get scared. They think that, oh, you know, what if I don't hold fast to the end? Does that mean I lose my salvation? The passage doesn't say that. The passage says what we have. It's, It's actually an encouragement that we've been given everything necessary. So let's, let's, there's no reason why 
we should not hold fast until the end. We are partakers of Christ. That is a given up front. Chapter 6 and verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. <coughs> it's a fascinating issue, and, and one that we, have, that we will be studying in our Hebrew series, but one that gets attacked and, and twisted and abused horribly. These are not warnings that should scare us. They are, they are warnings, but they should encourage us that He's the one that's bringing this about. He's the one that began the good, the good work. He's the one that's going to perfect it. We just need to stay humble, stay faithful, and watch what He does. Anyway, we'll say more on that as well. But to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that's, that's the beauty for us in the church age. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 11, a lot of Old Testament saints, they waited their whole lives to, for the promise, they never saw it, they died in faith, still waiting. Abraham died in faith and he never got a land or seed or blessing and all that was waiting to be fulfilled in Christ. But he died waiting and he died in faith and he died believing it. The difference here in, the, in, in our reality is guess what? We operate today in the eternity in that eternal perspective right here, right now. Think about it. We're already seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ as He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Positionally, that's an amazing thing to consider as a reality that we already experience. Well, we'll talk about that as well. 1 Peter 4.7 1 Peter Nobody pays attention to 1 Peter, but there it is. The end of all things is near. Don't you love that? Okay? You realize near is so relative. Have you ever driven long distances with a two-year-old in the back seat? Okay? Are we almost there yet? Are we almost there yet? Are we almost there? Yeah, it's near, it's near, it's near. Okay? 900 more miles, I and mean, we're almost there. Okay? And that's just for today's drive. There's another 900 tomorrow. But here's God saying it's near. So 2,000 years later, is it still near? It's even nearer. <laughs> okay? It's 2,000 years nearer than when he wrote it when he said it's near. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And uh, the nearness of uh, the end. If we are telos focused, we should have a dynamic prayer life. We should be serious about our walk because the end is near. The trumpet could sound tonight. Why am I wasting my time with all this other foolish stuff? Revelation 21.6 Were you disappointed that it was an alarm clock this morning and not a trumpet? You know, that, that should be our attitude every single morning. Oh, it's an alarm clock again. I was hoping it'd be a trumpet. I really wanted it to be a trumpet. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the telos. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life and without cost. See, He is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the finish line. Jesus is the end. He is the telos. He is the goal. He's the purpose. Why are we here? For Jesus Christ. Why is there anything? It's for Jesus Christ. You know, unbelievers, they debate about the origin of the universe and why is there a universe? Okay? You know, well, why is there a universe? 
Forget how it happened. Why is it here? <laughs> okay? The Bible tells us why it's here. Why is there something instead of nothing? You know, they admit there used to be nothing. Or some of them. Some of them won't admit that. But if, if they're, you know, unless they're totally delusional, they know that this universe is not eternal. This universe had a beginning. And since it had a beginning, what was there before the beginning? If there was nothing before, then why, if there was nothing before, then why is there something now? Okay? And, and without God, there's no telos. There's no purpose. But with God, who tells us, right? He tells us of the telos. The telos is Jesus Christ. All things are created through Him and for Him. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Christ. It's all for Christ. In fact, the fact that you're saved is not even for you. The fact that I'm saved is not even for me. I'm happy to be saved. I'd much rather be saved and be with Jesus forever than in hell for all eternity. But guess what? I'm not saved for me. I'm saved for Him. God the Father was pleased to provide a bride for His Son and provide many sons in glory. And, and it's, it's not for our sake, it's for His sake that the Father is bringing this plan about. And so uh, I can appreciate that. I, uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I think too many Christians are happy to have Jesus as their Alpha, but they want to be the Omega. Okay? I want to be the end. I want, I want the whole plan to revolve around me, which just becomes a Christian form of uh, selfishness that, you know, kind of like we had when we were unbelievers. Finally, Revelation twenty two thirteen. Again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the telos. The first and the last, the eschatos. The beginning and the end, the telos. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Why does the tree of life get replanted on the new earth? Why doesn't the tree of the knowledge of good and evil get replanted on the new earth? I'm glad it doesn't. Okay. That's the only tree that can bring about the fall of humanity. But how about the tree of life? Why, why does that get replanted on the new earth? Why was it on Adam's earth? Why didn't they eat from it? All right. Lots of see. You guys didn't have enough questions tonight, so I've got to throw out some extra questions of my own to get that going. All right. So this is our, this is our term. Our term is telos, which speaks to the end. And then epiteleo intensifies that. We also have a cognate adjective that is teleos. Teleos. This is an adjective. And uh, it speaks of something that is um, complete or mature or perfect. It speaks about why we go through the testing we go through in James chapter 1. Why do we have this kind of testing? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. And what's that? That you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason why we go through testing is because this is what God uses for our teleos to bring us to the completion. So we have teleos. Teleos is number 5046 in the Strong's numbering system. There are 19 uses of teleos. I mean, how many words do we got to look at? <laughs> how many verses do we got to look at? Okay, well, as the Lord gives us time, we'll, we'll see Him. Okay, it's a, it's a worthwhile study, it's a detailed study. But you got 10 uh, epiteleo verbs to look at and 40 telos nouns to look at and 19 teleos adjectives to look at. And all we're doing is looking at New Testament verses anyway. We could uh, take these Greek terms and go see how they were used in the Septuagint and see some Old Testament applications too if we wanted to. 
but um, we'll limit it to this. Uh, Matthew 5, 48, how about that? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, that sets the bar kind of high. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure I like that. I'm, uh, I'm kind of old school. I, I believe if at first you don't succeed, lower your standards. <laughs> All right, I'm teasing. That's a joke. All right, that's not really my philosophy. Oh, maybe in carnality. But I mean, it's not God's philosophy. God says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're growing to the mature man to present every believer complete in Christ. That's the goal. That's why you're in Bible class. That's why you have pastor teachers and flocks and the equipping of the saints for the work of service, Ephesians 4.13. But the standard is perfection, as Jesus says, Matthew 5.48. And this, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, you could think of this as the, uh, the uh, uh, constitution of the millennium. Think of this as the, as the uh, kingdom law that takes everything Mosaic law had and throws in mental attitudes and perfection from the, the finished work of Christ on the cross and says, here's the standard for, uh, for the kingdom. And it's not just uh, you know, external things, it's also mental attitudes behind different things. I don't think we're going to get very far with this, but this is because uh, we're almost out of time. But here in, uh, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, All these beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, that's happy. Happy are, happy are, happy are, happy are. If you want a how-to book on how to be happy, I suggest we start here. Okay? And it comes with orienting ourselves to the Word of God and uh, the happiness that then follows, including persecution. Um, Here's the uh, salt of the earth, here's the light of the world, here's um, fulfillment of scriptures, here's all these things that established the millennial kingdom. Here is uh, verse 21. Uh, you have heard that the ancients were told, thou shalt not murder. Well, I say to you, anger is a problem. <laughs> okay, Everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Yeah, maybe you never killed anybody, but you sure wanted to 55 times on 183. Okay, Anger equals murder under kingdom law in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and guess what? The, uh, the judge is omniscient. He knows. Okay? You're not going to get some kind of weasel lawyer in a rigged court, and you're not going to get you know, the, the trial thrown out or on a plea bargain or anything. The judge of the universe knows, and he's seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. You, uh, you have heard, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Guess what? You look at a woman with lust in your heart. Guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, anyway, there's other commandments here. There's the divorce command. There's the um, oath. Don't make an oath. Uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all this stuff. Love your enemy. I love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is in a millennial context for the fulfillment here in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay, it has nothing to do with a terrorist bombing in England or anything else. Okay, we can hunt down terrorists. We don't have to turn the other cheek and let them keep blowing us up every day. What am I looking for here? Oh, verse 48. Uh, Get this before the end of the hour. Um, See, the thing is, if you love those who love you, big deal. 
right? Verse 46, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than the others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the standard for the millennial kingdom. This is kingdom law. All right, well, there's our start. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The teleos, perfect will of God. So we'll get to some more of these on Sunday, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Father, that uh, you are the one that never settles. You never... uh, lower your standards or give up or just make do. Father, you bring about your results. And what you accomplish, you achieve. And what you intend, you achieve. And I thank you for that, Father. It's a glory. I thank you, Father, that uh, our Savior exhibited that same characteristic as He endured the sufferings of Gethsemane and as He accomplished the, the redemptive work at Golgotha. Father, I thank you for our Savior. And I pray we might learn from His example that we might fix our eyes upon Jesus, that we might fulfill your purpose in our generation. Thank you. And thank you, Father, for, I think it's neat that you brought us to Philippians and uh, at the same time, Father, we get to go through Hebrews. A lot of this is going to blend very well and that's, uh, that's a glory, Father. Thank you for arranging that as well. I thank you for all these things tonight, Father, in Jesus Christ's most perfect and holy name. Amen.